It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, there's only one thing today's papers are focused on, entirely understandably, the incoming COVID vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. The Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jonathan Van Tam, has been hitting the airwaves as a huge government public information drive gets underway. I was quite emotional when I heard how they got very meticulously to their conclusions about the Pfizer vaccine. And what a momentous journey and international effort it has been. Well, Dr Van Tam also warned there would be no immediate return to normal after the vaccine is rolled out. Uh, yes, I mean, it, this is a huge task, isn't it? As well as getting the vaccine to people, it's convincing people that it's a good idea. And we've talked on this programme many times about the anti-vaxxer movement and the challenges of doing that. Comes alongside the other big story, of course, Brexit talks appearing to be heading for a conclusion. The Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney saying that there's a good chance of getting a deal across the line in the next few days. But, 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 French President Emmanuel Macron turning up the heat on EU negotiators saying he could veto an agreement if he doesn't like the terms. It's never simple, is it? It never is. Well, let's try and uh, get some guidance and clarity on this uh, from Daniel Kaczynski, Conservative MP for Shrewsbury, who's our guest today. Daniel, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, uh, We heard what Jonathan Van Tam was saying about it's not going to be back to normal straight away, at least. What do you see as post-vaccine life looking like? Well, I'm speaking to you from my from my constituency, where in Shrewsbury, in Shropshire, Western England, where of course the R rate uh, has been much lower than in many other parts of the United Kingdom. So, we are looking forward to getting back to as normal as possible. But of course, in those first few months after Easter. Uh, when the bags hopefully has been properly uh, rolled out across the United Kingdom, we we will be inching our way back uh, to normality. And of course, there will still be reservations and concerns. There are some still some constituents who have reservations about vaccine. Uh, regrettably, I myself am going to try to uh, have it as as quickly as possible. And I think that uh, that level of confidence needs to be brought back uh, to our society uh, that this disease is. Find that we are finally turning a corner and getting to grips with this uh, this appalling virus which we've endured for over a year. 
Daniel, good to have you. I mean, we know a little bit about what the government priorities are in terms of who gets the vaccine first. Are they necessarily the way to go? Is there an argument to be made for giving young people the vaccine earlier, people in work uh, getting the vaccine so that the economy can open as soon as possible? Well, of course, there is going to be that, that, that debate and, and, and government uh, advisors and, and medical experts will, of course, be continuing to advise the health secretary and, and the cabinet about the rollout. But I have to say, I think that uh, I have a huge amount of sympathy with the concept that uh, people in care homes are going to get the vaccine uh, first. Uh, when you think about the fact that uh, in my, across the whole of the United Kingdom, people haven't been able to see their elderly mothers or fathers or grand grandparents um, it's been absolutely traumatic uh, for these families not to be able to see uh, their elderly loved ones and i think that they deserve certainly uh, to be the very first to, to have this um, so that they can uh, because they are elderly because they are vulnerable uh, they ought to be able to have it first in order to be able to see their grandchildren and children uh, Daniel, uh, what about the reaction to this? Because there has been a sense, I suppose, of perhaps uh, one might call it triumphalism, maybe justified, maybe not. Would you agree, for example, with the Education Secretary Gavin Williamson's comments on, on LBC uh, that the UK won the race to approve a vaccine because it's a better country? Let's actually hear what he said. I just reckon we've got the very best people in this country and we've obviously got the best medical regulators, much better than the French have, much better than the Belgians have, much better than the Americans have. That doesn't surprise me at all because we're a much better country than every single one of them. So, Daniel, seems a little bit jingoistic, wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, look, I speak to you as the first ever Polish-born British member of Parliament. So uh, I've got two horses in this race. One is in the European Union and the other one isn't. And the one is rapidly leaving and leaving the transition. I very much hope both countries do do well. Look, there are m many of us who are very proud of the United Kingdom, very proud of the scientists in this country. We're very proud of the fact that we have some of the best universities in the world. There's no doubt, uh, uh, there's no denying that we have some of the best universities and research facilities in the world. Of course, we're going to be proud of those achievements. And for a relatively small country uh, with only 60 million people, uh, the fact that we have these and that we are at the forefront of uh, technical and innovation research of this nature, of course, is something that we ought to be proud of. But I have to say, what will give us an advantage, I think, is as we move towards being an independent sovereign nation, so one of the benefits, of course, is that we can make decisions quickly, uh, which perhaps won't be possible for the European Union uh, countries, given the hugely complex nature of making decisions when you have to have them ratified by 27 different capitals. Now, whether that's recently, we've had an example of that on sanctions against Belarus, where the United Kingdom was the first country to implement sanctions, whereas the European Union wasn't able to implement them as quickly because Cyprus, for example, uh, was trying to uh, prevent those sanctions from taking place. So when you're dealing with 27 yeah. sometimes highly polarizing and disparate perspectives, decision-making inevitably is going to take a, a greater period of time. Uh, w what about the delivery of the vaccine? That We had claims from some government ministers that being on the way to Brexit made that faster. Do you buy that? 
Well, I, th- I think that uh, I think the fact that we're moving towards Brexit and the fact that we are the government is having to uh, prepare itself uh, for all eventualities and stockpiling and all sorts of other precautions that are taking place. Of course, the government I think is on amber or on a sort of red alert uh, to be aware uh, and ready and prepared for all eventualities for January the 1st. So, yes, we are we are in a state of preparedness and uh, we but, are but ready Brexit for... But Brexit didn't one speed of... up the delivery of a vaccine? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't go along with that. No, certainly not. OK, because that was what was said by Matt Hancock and Jacob Rees-Mogg, although the head of the regulators actually said it wasn't true. I mean, I suppose you could say on this, it doesn't look good if senior members of the government are saying something that is demonstrably not the case. Well, I mean, Mr. Mr. Rees-Mogg and Mr. Hancock will, will have made their statements and, and you will have to obviously interview them to ascertain why they've made those. I find it personally, I find it somewhat uh, difficult to, to to match the Brexit thing specifically uh, with uh, with the vaccine. But of course, uh, as I said to you, uh, because we're an in- independent sovereign nation, the, the decision making process in this country going forward will be much faster than we've experienced hitherto over the last 48 years as members of this organization, because of course, we've had to have these decisions ratified by and approved by another parliament, a foreign parliament in Brussels, uh, a, a commission uh, of unelected commissioners, and the panoply of officials that are dealing with these issues. The buck will stop with us in the British Parliament yeah. in Westminster. And I'm very proud of that because it's, it's going to be very strong for transparency, accountability to the electorate, and the whole decision-making process predicated on us being an independent and sovereign nation. Uh, and what about the road to reaching a trade deal? Are you optimistic at this stage that that will be achieved? Well, I, I sent a message to the Prime Minister uh, yesterday to say, look, I think if they continue uh, with this extraordinary uh, conduct towards us, which is uh, uh, highly inappropriate, I don't think they can really get it into their minds. They can't really quite yet accept or adapt themselves to the fact that we are now an independent sovereign nation, an independent sovereign nation like America and any other country uh, in the world. And that with that sovereignty comes a different sort of relationship that they have to have with us. We are not prepared to allow them to hoist on us their rules and regulations, uh, nor to supersede our Supreme Court decisions with those made by their Supreme Courts. And they have to adapt themselves to the fact that we are, as an independent sovereign nation, on an equal basis with them in terms of negotiations. And we're not going to sign up to a deal which allows them to continue to plunder our fish. They're they're, they're saying that they will allow But fisheries are a tiny part of our economy. Is it worth scuppering a deal purely on that? It's a tiny amount of the economy, but it's the concept. It's the concept that is very important. They're telling us we will allow you to fish 14 to 18 percent of all the fish in your waters. Now, I wonder what America or any other country in the world would say if a foreign power said we will we will allow you to fish this percentage of fish in rainwaters. waters. You know, the country in Europe 
that has the greatest, most sustainable fishing stocks is Iceland. Why? Because it's, in, it's an independent nation and it has predicated its fishing industry in such a way which guarantees and looks after for future generations the sustainability of that industry rather than allowing a free-for-all with every single country just plundering your fish. It's a matter of sovereignty. So very briefly then, Daniel, if Britain backs down on fish, if Britain backs down on fish, would you support that deal? Uh, well, as long as as long as it, it respects all aspects of our sovereignty and that they understand that we will not be a rule taker from them and that we have the right to decide our own subsidy uh, framework yeah. within this country, let's not forget we have a trade deficit with them of over 90 right. billion a year. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with the pandemic pressure mounting on the government to call an inquiry into its handling of the virus. We always knew this was going to come at some point, perhaps not so soon. The Eye has this story reporting that a group of 22 charities and unions have signed a letter organised by the families of British COVID victims calling for an immediate quick-acting inquiry to deliver conclusions over the winter. And that, they say, can help inform the government's response later on. So there is a good reason for having it done this early. Well, it all comes as the all-party parliamentary group on the virus is due to publish its first interim report on the government's strategy. The report's going to claim that the government's failed to learn from other countries and that the relaxation of restrictions over Christmas and the return to a tiered system is, well, a gamble. The group's leader, the Liberal Democrat Leila Moran, has told the Prime Minister that relying solely on a vaccine to give us deliverance from this crisis is wrong and is calling for a long-term exit strategy. Yeah. Meanwhile, thousands of university students heading home for Christmas today after being given a week-long travel window to reduce the transmission of COVID-19. This has been an ongoing issue, hasn't it? Remember, it all playing out when they first got to university at the start of the term. But a study by the Higher Education Policy Institute has found that more than half of them are concerned about going back to study in January. The government advising universities to stagger that return in the new year over a period of five weeks. Institutions have also been urged to continue offering online learning where possible. So it's far from back to normal if you're a university student. And I really do pity some of those, I've got to say. It sounds like an awful time to be at university. Right. Well, who picks the names for think tanks? I always want to know. This one's called (laughs) Onward. Onward. I mean, it sounds more like a slogan. But anyway, uh, a new report by them, they're a right-leaning think tank, is arguing that Conservatives need to find a way to win back younger people ahead of the next elections, in addition to fighting to retain, of course, their coalition of traditional Southern Tories and first-time Tory-voting Northern and Midland voters. The report also has the interesting revelation that one in five of the 2019 Tory voters only lent their votes to the party, meaning the majority looks pretty vulnerable if they don't permanently convert. That is going to be tested, but not for a little while, I fancy. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one, because we always talk about what a mountain Labour has to climb. But could some of it be artificial if these voters are considering coming back to a party that many of them had voted for their whole lives before they switched in 2019? Who knows? Anyway, let's talk about Brexit. France warning it may veto a trade deal between the UK and EU if it doesn't like the terms. At a meeting of the bloc's ambassadors, the EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier swerving a request to see key parts of the test text before it's finished some diplomats voicing concern he might be giving too much away and leaving little time to scrutinize the deal so even in one camp not everybody can agree with each other for more about all of this let's bring in tim bale who's deputy director at the uk in a changing europe and professor of politics at queen mary university of london uh, tim got to get your thoughts on france straight away we've heard this sort of intervention from them before what is this is this posturing is this throwing their weight around is this theatrics or is this really serious I think this is serious. I mean, the French have been um, really complaining about the possibility that uh, Barnier may, uh, bizarrely enough, because he is French, actually do a deal which uh, doesn't satisfy them on fishing. That's what uh, Macron seems to be particularly uh, concerned about uh, still. Uh, there does seem to have been some movement, so it seems as if the UK will allow uh, a little bit more uh, access to its waters uh, for EU fishermen. Um, but it's still not enough for the French, uh, for whom this is a very important uh, symbolic point, uh, but also actually for those communities that are affected, quite an important economic point as well. Uh, and I don't think uh, Macron, given that he will be facing election relatively soon, uh, wants to give away too much in that respect. So if I were to push you, Tim, and say, one, do you think there'll be a deal, and two... Who will concede and on what in the end? What would you say? <laughs> uh, $64,000 question. Um, <laughs> it still uh, strikes me as rational for both sides to make a deal rather than not make a deal. But, of course, time is running out and it's perfectly possible that we may accidentally, because time runs out, slide into no deal. Uh, my money is just about uh, on a deal. In terms of um, who will compromise, I mean, it's clear that the the UK probably needs to compromise a little bit more on fish, but maybe not too much now. Um, and the UK also has to compromise when it comes to the governance of um, state aid. I think one of the other things that the Europeans are very concerned about is uh, this level playing field issue, but also state subsidies. And not just that, but on how, if there is a dispute, it will actually be arbitrated. Um, the, the, the Europeans are also particularly concerned when it comes to subsidies that um, any kind of arbitration system will be able to prevent the British from, as it were, giving money to companies before they give it rather than post hoc um, after they've given it, which, by which time many European um, people think that it would be too late, if you like. Um, and, and what about if we get a deal, the whole process of getting this approved on the UK side? Do you see Boris Johnson running into trouble there? I mean, after all, there are some pretty hardline Brexiteers in his party and we may see some sort of a climb down from the UK yet. Uh, I think there, there could be problems for Boris Johnson. I think he has got a sufficiently big majority to be able to provide him with a cushion so that even if some of the more hardline Brexiteers object to this, uh, he will be able to get it through Parliament. Having said that, um, you know, he doesn't want to um, perpetuate the impression that he's been giving over the last um, few weeks that actually he is very vulnerable uh, to his backbenchers. He does need to reassert his authority. And I think he will be hoping to 
make sure that he can get this through without very many voting against or, or possibly without anybody voting against it at all. You also have to think about um, the incentives for those uh, those people. Many of them will be hoping perhaps to have a job in government over the next few years. So the Rips have got you know a, a carrot there that they can dangle. Many of them will be aware that people just want to get this done and that's what the Conservatives after all promised in their manifesto. Uh, so they may well be willing to compromise even if they don't think it's the absolute best deal available. I think many of them will, will regard it as better than no deal, to be honest. You have to be a pretty hardline Brexiteer to think that no deal is a good prospect. Yeah, and the chance of people going to the barricades for some fish possibly is a bit of a stretch, not least, of course, because of the other thing that's overhanging everything, which is the COVID crisis, means that many of their constituencies are already feeling battered. I mean, feeling perhaps that this would be something you just don't want to have the added complication. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's pretty clear that no deal, although it wouldn't be that much better, perhaps in some people's opinion, than, than the bad deal, would actually um, mean far less short-term disruption, certainly. It, you know, although there may well be queues, actually, even if we go to a deal now, because we haven't had time to sort out the systems, they won't be as bad as they would be. Uh, we won't have tariffs if there's a deal, uh, and that will mean, obviously, that we won't get um, price rises in the shops that that will affect people, uh, I think, fairly clearly. Uh, and, and as you say, I, I think, you know, the, the damage from COVID-19 is already bad enough. Do they really want to pile on top of that uh, more tangible damage and more tangible disruption uh, in the short term? Uh, I'm not sure that they do. What about the EU side? We've got a story saying that some countries are relatively relaxed with a no-deal outcome. They're happy to trade with the UK based on tariffs and quotas. Are, are you convinced that that is a reality, or again, is this just playing politics? Well, I think it probably reflects a degree of frustration on the part of some European diplomats and some heads of government, to be honest. Uh, I, I do think that they are worried about making too many compromises. I do think, and they're probably quite right to say that they're more prepared for no deal and they can wear no deal more than the British can. So why should they make too many compromises? Uh, it does seem, although there is some you know, concern now, and there have been some conversations and some media reports about governments being worried you know, because they haven't seen the, the no-deal preparations from the Commission. Uh, it, it does still seem to be the case that most European countries could probably cope better uh, than the UK with any disruption. And certainly, of course, the European economy is much bigger than the UK. So uh, the hit to, to you know, either side from a no-deal would be much more significant to the UK than it would be to the EU, because for the EU, it's spread out between several countries. Tim, I mean, you were, you were hinting a moment ago about the nature of the deal being quite thin. I mean, the, the, if we didn't have a deal, potentially there would be price rises and things like that. But the, the deal itself, uh, once they fought over it, the remains of it are not that substantial. Are we actually really just saying, well, actually, we'll have to go through all the things about services, financial services, like stuff like that, will actually have to be postponed to a later date anyway? Well, that's right. I mean, this, this deal will only really be about um, trading goods. It's not going to really feature anything uh, as far as services are concerned. So uh, if the EU and the, uh, the Brits want to do a deal over that, that will have to come. Uh, but having said that, 
if we get a deal, I think any further negotiations will be conducted uh, in a much better atmosphere than they will be if we if we leave transition without any kind of deal at all. We're, we'll probably have to go back if we leave without no deal to, to negotiate some of the stuff we're trying to negotiate now. And then we'll have to um, pursue negotiations on the other topics that aren't being dealt with now, all in an atmosphere where perhaps there is, you know, a breakdown of trust. And we've already seen, actually, in terms of trust, problems that the, the Europeans have with what the Brits are trying to do with the internal market bill, which seems to be reneging on some of the promises they made in the withdrawal agreement. And I think if we were to leave without a deal, uh, I think, you know, trust would be at an all-time low, and it would be quite difficult, I think, to... to get negotiations going um, successfully uh, for a number of months and, you know, the worst case scenario even for a year or so. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.